0: you do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast day. I say that a lot now because here at The Takeout, we are producing as much content as we can. For those of you who are new adopters to The Takeout, welcome. It's great to have you with us. At this time, when we're all working from home, at home, and have lots more time on our hands, podcasts are a place to learn, maybe to get a little enjoyment. Um, We try to do both things, and maybe a little bit of laughter along the way. Last week, you saw on the platform, and if you haven't yet, I urge you to go back, a very long conversation with a psychologist Lynn Bufka talking about the therapeutic and psychological side of being at home, self-isolation, social distancing, everything related to that in COVID-19. A great interview with Gary Goleman, a stand-up comedian who's also had his struggles and successfully surmounted them dealing with depression and anxiety. Earlier this week, we had David Simon. If you're a fan of The Wire, and for goodness sake, who isn't? Uh, he is that writer and showrunner. In addition to that, Homicide, uh, Life on the Street, and a new HBO miniseries, The Plot Against America. Great conversation with David Simon. So, we are, to the degree possible, cranking out as much podcast material as we can, and we are glad to have you with us. I want to have a conversation today that's a bit of an explainer on something that very big has happened in Washington and is now beginning to radiate across the country in terms of creating a safety net economically, and a bridge, if you will. I think both metaphors apply to help the country at the individual level, at the small business level, and at the corporate level, make its way for the next couple of three months through whatever is coming in COVID-19. Then we have a special guest to help us talk about some dimensions of that. We can't get to every aspect of it, but some of the dimensions of it. And her name is Maya McGinnis. She is, Maya, what's your exact title, please?
1: I'm the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget.
0: And what is the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget all about?
1: The committee has been around for decades now, um, many decades, and it was created from members of Congress who, when they left Congress, realized how difficult it was to actually engage in fiscally responsible policies. So it's a very, very bipartisan organization. I'm a political independent, And the board is interestingly made up of people who have played major roles in budgeting so the heads of the budget committees house and senate the office of management and budget congressional budget office treasury department federal reserve board um, and it's meant to work with people in washington as well as educate people outside of washington about the importance of fiscal responsibility and we'll get into that but It's not as simple as, oh, you should have a balanced budget. It's much more nuanced than that, but it's really about how we should be using debt borrowing and um, not debt, sort of budget surpluses, responsibly and for economic reasons more than for political reasons. And as I think we'll talk about, a lot of the reason that matters is when you have big crises in a country.
0: Exactly. And I've... Been covering budgets, taxes, and that related policy almost since I arrived in Washington in 1990. And it sounds at one level, oh, it's just sort of green eye shade stuff. It's just for the bean counters, the federal accountancy types. That's not true at all because, based on my experience, Maya, you can't have a credible and long running conversation about budgets, debt, and the trajectories without understanding economic fundamentals. And a growing economy and a vibrant economy are essential to creating an atmosphere where you can talk cogently about what the budget is or isn't and what kind of flexibility you do or don't have.
1: You know, Major, I I totally agree with that and that I actually came to this issue because I was interested in a lot of other economic issues, including income inequality, education and research and development. And then I kept feeling like, oh, if you just look at these issues in one kind of compartmentalized space, it doesn't really do them justice as much as if you understand the overall, role of government and public policy, and a really important piece of it, which is the trade-offs involved. So when I think about federal budgets, I think, okay, what are the things that you would want the federal government to do? Progressives and conservatives are gonna disagree on that, but you kind of lay out what your ideas of what government should do, and then you drill down a little bit about what's the best way to do those things, and how should you pay for them? And then over the years, and this has become more of a problem, I think, over the years that both you and I have been working in this, but more and more often the answer is, I'm not going to pay for it. Either I don't have to, it's so important I shouldn't, or it's going to pay for itself, which is never the case. Um, and so that that whole put it in a framework of a budget and then figure out the best policies is something that's really I think, both interesting in terms of what a country stands for, a budget should be the story of who you are as a country, and really critically important in terms of building an economy that is sustainable um, and has a strong foundation. I think when you're weak fiscally, you have a weak foundation to the economy.
0: So taking that statement, Maya, from your vantage point, do you find anything objectionable about the CARES Act, the $2.2 trillion initiative undertaken by the Congress, signed by the president?
1: Um, I mean, the answer is, of course, because it's a $2.3 trillion bill. It's the largest bill we've ever had of this nature that we've passed in such a short amount of time. So by the very nature of the swiftness with which we had to pass it, it's going to be filled with all sorts of things that aren't perfect. Uh, But let me just start by taking a step back, which is, this is a terrifying moment. This is an absolutely terrifying moment. It is exactly when you want your country, your your government in your country, to be strong enough resource wise and politically wise to swiftly act and come in to engage in ways to help with all of the terrible things that we are facing from the healthcare crisis to the related economic crisis and all of the hardships that are going on across the country. So, whereas I spend my time thinking about these issues from fiscal and fiscally responsibility perspective, again, that's exactly why you want to have been running responsible government for the past year, especially when the economy was strong, so that we could have a moment like this. So, I just want to sort of blanket this, because sometimes I think people think those of us who are budget hawks, deficit hawks, are kind of the, the spreadsheet-only green-eye-shaped right. people. Right. And I think it's the opposite, I think it's like, the compassion that comes from being strong and ready and prepared for emergencies when you really need to act. So in terms of the CARES Act, I have to say, I think overall, really, really successful piece of legislation. And yes, we will spend the next days and weeks and months uncovering pieces of garbage that were tossed in there that you know lobbyists and members got their favorite things thrown into the bill. But overall, this is a very big bill over $2 trillion that meets the test of the moment. And it includes funding for individuals and families, for small businesses, and for large corporations, as well as building off of the first two rounds of of, um, interventions that we did that focused on health care and sort of work the ability to take time off work for being sick. So yes, I think this is covering the major components that we need to be thinking about. And I think it has done it in a way that, given the constraints, is as timely, targeted, and temporary, the three T's of stimulus, as one could expect. Um, And this was no easy feat. So really good marks for getting the best I think we could have expected done in record time.
0: It really is record time. And with really, if you think about it, audience, I know Maya has thought about this. Because anyone who spends any time covering these issues or Congress as an institution understands the prerogatives of both sides, the House and the Senate, and how the House and Senate, when a piece of legislation of this magnitude is being drafted, want to feel like they're equal partners. Well, for all sorts of logistic and health reasons, the House was not a a co-partner. It was sort of hearing things and being consulted at the margins, but it was drafted essentially by small task force, assigned originally just by just Republicans, and then it quickly became bipartisan because the Senate Majority Leader realized he could not do this with only Republican votes. But the Senate was the driving force for this piece of legislation. And then the House was, like I said, at the margins consulted, but essentially presented a piece of legislation that it knew had to pass. And it had to go through extraordinary measures to engage a quorum, just to meet the constitutional definition of a quorum and pass it as fast as possible. And to think about $2.3 trillion allocated in essentially a legislative time clock that's about two weeks from beginning to end, if my memory serves me correctly, is without any historic precedent in this country.
1: No, that's right. And you add into the mix... a highly dysfunctional governance structure that we are, we are in the midst of, where the partisanship, the polarization, the infighting, the resentment is at peak levels all across um, the House, the Senate and the, the executive branch. And it was um, therefore reassuring to see that they were able to roll up their sleeves and get something done. And again, surprisingly, something really pretty good in terms of what's, what makes up this bill. Now I also talk about this. This is not to say that will continue because I have very, very strong concerns about over time, we're gonna need further rounds of economic intervention. And I think they will probably deteriorate in terms of how much they can keep the garbage out and how much it can be casting politics aside as much as possible and focusing on the task at hand. I do worry about that. But for right now, the immediacy of the moment was met with something that was big and strong. And I think we'll see some results.
0: Maya and I are going to dig into some of the details of this bill. Not every single detail. It's a vast and complex piece of legislation, but some of the most important components of it. And if you are curious out there, audience, about this topic, let me highly recommend to you a friend of the show who's been on the show before, Stephen J. Dubner and his incredibly successful Freakonomics radio podcast. They put together a show this week on this very topic with a wide range of people who had been involved at the highest levels of white houses run by republicans and democrats from an economic perspective about the various strengths and weaknesses of this piece of legislation so if you want more on this topic go to free economics radio maya uh, if you were to uh describe for the audience what you think are the best components of this bill what would they be
1: so the timeliness the fact that we got it done really quickly um and that that's somewhat reassuring on its own the size of it, nobody knows what the right size of this bill is because we don't know what a big downturn the economy is going to take. Uh, but $2 trillion is huge, and I think that's appropriate. And then I think, um, listen, there's no perfect stimulus because every kind of government intervention creates different um, incentives that aren't always perfect. But I would say the strengths of this bill are that it does a lot to alleviate the hardship of families across the board and those who are being unemployed. There are two focuses, there's two two main pieces that come to affecting individuals, and those are expanded and extended unemployment benefits and one-time checks. And I think the combination of those two policies uh, is very solid for helping families. The other piece of it that I think is really good is the whole portion that is focused on small business loans and grants, where it's going to greatly increase the ability and accessibility to getting loans. And the bulk of those for small companies are going to be forgivable um, as long as the money was focused on covering cost of either keeping people employed or rents or basic things like that. When you're thinking about how to create a stimulus, there's a couple things you want to think about. The first is the obvious healthcare spending. How do we kill? You spending. Know, how do we kill the thing that is the real root of this? And that is going after the pandemic as absolutely aggressively as possible. The second thing is to alleviate the hardships. So many people who are ill-prepared to respond to this and so many people through no fault of their own who will lose their income. And how do you try to make people as close to whole as possible, not have them suffer because of this? And the third, the piece that we haven't gotten to yet, but we will have to at some point, is how do you put in place the mechanisms that will keep the economy poised for a recovery that's as strong and quick as possible and rebuild the resilience of the economy? And so one of the considerations in a bill like this is, you have to acknowledge a lot of people are going to lose their job. And as we're seeing by the jobs numbers, that is going to be a lot. And you want to uh, make sure they don't suffer because of that. But you also want to put in place policies that help keep people, keep their jobs. And that can either be helping the individuals or helping the company so they can meet payroll for a longer time. Because the more people are still connected to their jobs, when we are past the pandemic point where we don't want people to go out and shop. I mean, The reason the economy is not free for all is because we don't want people to participate in the economy right now. Right. right. And so what we want to do is once we're ready to move back into that space, have as many people reconnected to their jobs still so that they can continue to work. And I think that the bill um, balanced those kinds of objectives quite well.
0: Yeah. It seems to me the way to think about this is we have a demand suppressed recession. We are suppressing demand as a matter of government policy Mm -hmm. in order to achieve a larger public health outcome. And we are suppressing demand that was uh, at a level of high job creation, slightly upticked wages, and rather steady revenue flows to state, local, and federal governments. And we're going to circle back to some particular problems cities and states are going to face on their own budget ledgers in a second. But I think the way to think about this is we are, as a government, suppressing demand, meaning we're not going out and doing the economic activities we would normally do, so we're pushing that down. Not that we don't have the wherewithal, not that we don't have the desire. We have both in many instances, but we're suppressing that. So this isn't the idea of, oh, how do we stimulate a dead economy? No, no. We are intentionally deadening the economy and trying to figure out the best way to create a life raft for this deadened economy to stay where it was so it can be revived more rapidly on the other side of this. I think that's an apt metaphor. And that is something we've never tried before. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I really appreciate you saying we don't know what the right number is and we don't know what the right policy is. And I recall what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said during the Great Depression. And this is not a partisan observation. Newt Gingrich said this all the time as someone who admired Franklin Delano Roosevelt for saying this is a time for experimentation, aggressive, continuous experimentation. And to your point about being reassured that Congress worked on a bipartisan way, I hope those members, however they're communicating with each other now, think along those lines, because we're going to have to continue to experiment on this. Because. This is not going to be the last piece of legislation. That's right. It may be the next to the last, the next to the last. We may need six more pieces of legislation. We don't know. What I do know is we're going to have to experiment and be innovative and creative in ways that we haven't before because we are in uncharted territory.
1: And it's so true, Major. And this is something. So, about, I don't know, six months ago, we came up with a paper called Break the Glass. We knew there was going to be another downturn at some point. The expansion had been going on for a very long time. And as an organization that's worried about our fiscal health, and our fiscal health was very, very poor going into this, we put forth an idea, which is when the next downturn comes and we fight the recession, let's pair the stimulative measures that we take in the short term with longer term offsets. So, over time, it doesn't increase the debt. Well, we can go back and talk about that. But internally, we talked a lot about how we didn't know what kind of the recession the next one would be. The last recession we had was a financial recession, came from the housing crisis and other related things. Uh, We didn't know what the recession would look like, but we sort of thought we had a sense and how wrong we were. Because a pandemic is an entirely different kind of shock to the economy than this would be if it were a debt crisis or a stock market bubble or an extra, you know, other countries didn't want to buy our debt. A bunch of different things would have created different shocks. This shock is completely different. And so anybody who's pulling out the playbook to fight it is going to miss a lot of the nuances. And likewise, as people are trying to figure out what to do for round four, assuming there's a round four, anybody who doesn't take a pause and study how this first round is really working its way through the bloodstream of the economy is going to miss that. The industries that are going to be harmed in this recession are very different than those that would have been harmed in a different recession. I mean, this has to do with how we work and the proximity of ourselves as people in urban versus rural areas. There's a lot going on here that just we haven't seen before. So we really have to rip up the old playbooks and think. And certainly there's some kind of stimulative measures that work across the board. But we really have to make sure this is tailor-made to where we are now. And that means digging into the numbers of the economy, the different sectors to figure out where we're going to push things up going forward.
0: I wonder what your appraisal is, Maya, on the economic side of this, of the direct payments, uh, $1,200 per individual for those who economically qualify. It basically phases out at $99,000 in uh, adjusted gross income for individuals, about a, about double that for, for, for couples and $500 for children. Um, that feels and sounds to me like a universal basic income in a Dixie cup, Um, it's not a monthly thing. You don't get it every month as the universal basic income advocates led by Andrew Yang would suggest, but it's something that is a direct cash payment. I've heard various economic analysis of whether or not it's a good or bad idea. What do you think?
1: Yeah. And usually economics isn't binary, right? It's not so black or white. It's not so good or bad. And so I think it's really interesting that this is one that, hmm, I kind of like because of the broadness and the quickness that you could get it out there and you just know that everybody's going to have a little bit of a cushion. And for very, wealth, you know, wealthy, very wealthy people aren't getting it. For people at the hot, top of the income who qualify for it, it's not going to matter as much. It could make a big difference for other people. But it's not targeted nearly enough in terms of those who are suffering from this downturn versus those who aren't. So it's just kind of helping people who would qualify for it. And I think it's good that there's a means test that's part of it. I think that's a good thing for the moment because it's just easy to get out there. I don't think we should get in the habit of where we're going to extend it forever and ever because we're gonna build a lot of things that are basically extender policies where every time they start to expire, there's a huge constituency. And you know, if you're getting a check for a pretty decent check in the mail, that's gonna be a very strong constituency for continuing it. And what I think is good is the balance that we did those monthly checks um, with the unemployment insurance because That means that there's two kinds of ways people are getting money either because they lost their jobs and they need more to be whole or here because they are um qualified in terms of their overall income levels but again it it depends what your goals are if our goals are to help people who've lost their jobs unemployment makes sense if our goals are to help people because everybody's suffering and we want to build a little cushion into the economy then direct payments make sense and if our goals are to keep people connected to their employers then these loans for businesses so they can keep paying payroll that makes sense right now we have a little you know kind of have a stew of all of these things and it's messy and it's imperfect because there's multiple goals um and i think it's about the right mix for this first round to have all of them i really do worry though that once the economy is recovered i know it's even hard to imagine but someday we will yes that there will be strong, strong arguments to keep all sorts of policies going, which at least deserve their own separate discussion, like a UBI would have had. It shouldn't just happen because we fell into it during a crisis. That's a big discussion and it's much more related to the future of technology and a lot of other longer term issues.
0: So you mentioned a couple things I want to zero in on. You talked about, you hope that the direct payment doesn't become an extender. For those in the audience who don't know what that Washington parlance means, because it's a very important sort of short term thing when people drop that name and say, oh, the extender bill is coming. It sends out a sort of a clarion call to certain segments of the lobbyist community in Washington, because a tax extender is a piece of legislation that has tax cuts that have been previously passed by Congress that are due to expire. And there's a long running cliche in Washington that once you have a spending program, it never goes away. Well, trust me, folks. Once you have a tax cut, it doesn't go away either. It might even be more durable than a spending program. So that's what Maya was referring to, and it's an important question that this doesn't become baked into the cake, or if it, and and we can have a discussion about why it should or should or should not. I think Maya touched mostly on that, but I also want to talk about something that is in the unemployment insurance benefit aspect of this bill that has not been historically in unemployment insurance, which is those who are contractors, mm. loosely, loosely attached to the workforce and so-called gig workers. And that to me seems like something that was decided rather quickly. If we had an academic and abstract conversation about that, that would take years and years and years of wrangling. My guess is on the other side of this, Maya, that's going to be baked into the cake. That's going to be a part of the future unemployment insurance reality. Totally
1: agree with you on that prediction, which is there's been a struggle and there has been a discussion for years about how do we treat gig workers in terms of the other benefits that they should qualify, what are their classifications, and we just um, super sped up that discussion where I think we moved the gig workers from outside of the traditional economy in terms of many of the regulations and benefits that we put on more traditional workers, and we moved them back into it. So going forward, I think their treatment will be much more similar, and there'll certainly be strong cases of you can't leave them out of things like unemployment insurances and different different things to hedge against risk.
0: You also talked about there's two components of unemployment insurance and small business administration loans, and I think they are structured, and a lot of economists I've listened to believe that they are a good impulse and well-crafted, but they have one overriding concern, which is, okay... Unemployment insurance offices at the state level are stressed as they've never been stressed before. I've talked to friends who have been recently laid off. They have been on the website for Maryland, Virginia, because we live here in the greater District of Columbia area, DMV as we call it, District Maryland, Virginia. And they've been knocked off the website repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. They can't even get in. And there's all, and that's, so that's going to be an infrastructure structural implementation challenge for everyone. Yes, the benefits are there. Yes, they're guaranteed by the federal government, but can you actually access them? That's going to be a a bit of a challenge uh, in terms not only of completing what you need to complete, but on the timeliness of them getting back to you. The second thing is the small business loans. I don't think uh, any small business is going to rely any more than it will the next couple of months on whatever kind of accounting advice it has in-house, whether the small business owner is the accountant himself or herself, or they have someone on the side because there's going to be a lot of forms to fill out and a lot of things to verify and a lot of things to establish in order for this money to flow. And the concerns I've heard is, wow, the impulses are good. The legislation has flexibility, but it's going to be a challenge under these conditions for people to get this money in the way they're hoping to get it and the way it's been more or less promised that they will get it.
1: Yes. I mean, just a huge yes. This is the capacity to meet the needs of the moment and the administrative challenges. The capacity just isn't there and nor could we have assumed it would be there because no one would have ever thought, I mean, we might run scenarios on this, but no one was really thinking this would be the next scenario. And and the ability to build this quickly, especially when we cannot be in human contact with each other. So we are all doing this from our remote locations. There will be huge glitches. And that's, that is a scary thought because there will be huge glitches that keep people who are the most in need from accessing the funds directly that they really need for their livelihood um, for basic necessities. And Um, I think this is, I don't have an answer to how one makes that better because yes, you have surfaced a huge problem. There are going to be weights. There are going to be people who don't know what they qualify for. It's a really interesting moment when you can step back. You know, I, I think like most people, I waver throughout my day between wanting to sob because of the tragedy of all of this and then kind of thinking of, okay, what are the lessons learned? How do we think about this? How do we approach this? I think one of the most interesting, on the non-sobbing moments, is um, how all these different layers of connectivity have to come together for a moment like this, because this is a global pandemic. We need a massive federal response. We're seeing a lot of interesting tensions going on between the governors and the president. So what's federal, what's at the state? And then you build that down to the local areas, and even there, you're not going to be able to do a lot of things, and I know, you know, suddenly volunteerism charity is going to come in and have to fill some of these gaps too. But again, without the human contact that would normally happen. So the answer is a lot of people are going to be facing some devastating situations and the faster, luckily we're at a moment where our tech sector has really been developing quickly and can hopefully pivot to focus the great brilliance of a lot of our tech companies that have been maybe focused on things that weren't as you know, massively important is what they can do right now, in terms of how to connect people, how to connect resources with the people who know them. And I know that there's a lot of energy going into that. Um, Thank, thank God we're at a moment where that may be there to solve some of these problems, but there's no sugarcoating it. We are not prepared to respond to this and there's going to be a lot of hardship from both the health and the economic destruction that's happening.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned the way that you, on a daily basis, uh, waver emotionally from sobbing to looking at the work and looking at the possibilities. I think that is an apt description of almost everyone because you can't fathom these days uh, without catching your breath and feeling a deep pit in your stomach about the cases, the deaths. And you know, and we were told earlier this week by the White House and no lesser authority than Dr. Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci, that hundred thousand deaths is not only possible, it very well may be probable. And that would be on the lower end. And that is such a shocking and horrifying number that that's where the sobs come from. Yeah. And yet yeah. we can't just do that. We have to think of all the other things, adaptation and otherwise, and, Give me just a second uh, for uh, a historical uh, analogy, which is we have lately um, thought of the World War II generation, whether we should or should not, as the greatest generation, because it was challenged. It was challenged, and it found in that purpose of that challenge something deeper that it didn't know existed, and that was part and parcel of the Great Depression, but also World War II. Well, I don't know if we ever needed it or wanted it, but this is a challenge. I'm not sure it's that magnitude, but it's pretty darn close as far as I can tell. And when challenged, you find different ideas and different solutions, and you come to them more rapidly, and you prioritize in ways that you might not ordinarily. And if there's any opportunity for this country to do that, to prioritize, to solve, and to move rapidly with the best of what we have, it's now.
1: So I've been I've been thinking so much about this because um the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget earlier this year we launched a new project called Fix Us. And Fix Us came about because after years of struggling to get people to focus on the national debt, which is a very hard issue because fixing it requires really tough policy measures, tax increases and spending cuts, exactly the things politicians don't like to do. And it requires bipartisanship and compromise to get there. And As the country has become, the country and our politicians have become more polarized, we've become more divided, more dysfunctional, and filled with distrust. It's become clear, it's become evident that we weren't going to be able to make progress on this issue. So we built this project called Fix Us. And one of the things we've been working on recently is coming up with a paper that really looks at the root causes of how we became, came to this broken moment. And there's a bunch of factors. There are political factors. There are economic factors. There's cultural factors. There's institutional, technological. Uh, so we're kind of going through and, and studying all of these. And suddenly, again, everything's sped up. We sit and now think about, OK, how do you take this terrible moment and try to address some of these root causes so this country can come out of this more united rather than more divided? And the jury's out. I'll give you one piece of bad news which is um, uh, emergencies, crises that come from external threats, so say terrorism or world war, tend to unify a country. Crises that create scarcity, which is one of the things we're clearly seeing with the healthcare supplies that we need, can actually, are more likely to turn countries against each other. We will have states that are saying, you know, I can't give you our ventilators because we need our ventilators within the country. So that is an added challenge that we have to work through as we're trying to figure out how to come more unified. But I do think the challenge of bringing in the private sector bringing in the technology companies looking at all of these people i mean it's it's remarkable the healthcare workers to the grocery store workers the new set of heroes we have in a country that had lost the sense of any heroes whatsoever it turns out the heroes of this moment are the everyday people who make this country right there's something inspiring about that but how we will build on that to hopefully unify us again you know i'm a political independent and i don't i don't I don't find partisan politics productive. I find it destructive for the most part. And I would love it if throughout this entire crisis, I didn't have to hear the word Republican or Democrat or red state or blue state, but could just think about how we can all do our parts in this. Um, And then, then to bring this back to the topic at hand, sort of the economic response, I would love it if as we continue to make these packages, We had less political infighting, and we had a lot of lobbyists who didn't see this as an opportunity to help their clients get into the next stimulus package. But we could really try to build something that's focused on the healthcare response, the people who are most harmed by this, and the areas that we need to rebuild for resilience in our economy. And we didn't have to worry with late night things being tucked into a bill because it's just not right for this
0: moment. Right. For sure. Completely agree. My advice to any lobbying shop in Washington would be when you pick up the phone, offer something. Mm. Don't take something, offer Mm. something. If you don't have something to offer, put down the phone. That's my blanket unrequested advice to every lobbyist in Washington, D.C. If you pick up the phone, offer something. Don't take something.
1: I mean, communicating what the real hardships are and how best to help people is one thing. But fighting for dollars and kind of an an unhealthy scramble when we really need to make sure those dollars go to who needs them the most and who can best use them. It should be something that you believe in your heart is the right thing for the moment.
0: From your perspective, do you have any uh, hesitancy at all or misgivings about the roughly $500 billion allocated for large corporations uh, that's in the bill?
1: The oversight piece. I think we should have as much oversight as possible of all of it. Um, I think large corporations pay a huge piece of keeping the economy going and keeping people employed. I think what we've seen in terms of income inequality and, and CEO compensation stock buybacks cannot be a part of this because the loss of trust that is left over after 2009 is so strong that that could undermine confidence in this. Um, but there are certainly huge corporations that need resources, need a bridge loan to the point where um, the economy's recovered. So if, if we do that with integrity, I don't have reservations. My reservations are that it will, there'll be abuse in it.
0: And were you in any way alarmed by the signing statement from the White House that said on some of these oversight issues, the bill as drafted from this White House's point of view encroaches unnecessarily on executive privilege, not privileges, but executive powers?
1: I was. I think this is a moment where the first moment was get things done as quickly as possible, the next moment is make sure further things are targeted in the right places, and accountability is a piece of all of this. One of the reasons I talk so strongly about sort of making sure that it's not politics and private sector interests that are dominating the bill is that the credibility of these these policies is critical because this is not the last round we're going to need. We will need more. And if we put these together in ways that aren't filled with integrity, people will lose trust in them and we won't be able to do what we need to do to fix the economy. So this is like, you know, when you negotiate, you either negotiate with somebody once or you have multiple rounds with them. This is multiple rounds of negotiation with our government, within our government, but also the taxpayers. And by the way, the next generation, which in many ways is gonna be footing the bill for all of this. Yes. And so we have to make sure that these things are done credibly. And I think the high level of accountability is certainly uh, one of the pieces that can help with that.
0: Accountability, to uh, use the metaphor again about bridging, is the bridge to trust. Yeah. And uh, I want to ask you a little bit about what cities and states are going through. Unlike the federal government, almost every state in the union has some kind of requirement on an annual or biannual, meaning two-year basis, to balance its budget. Every state in the union is facing a dramatic reduction in revenue. So are cities. There's some allocation of funds in the bill. I think it's $150 billion roughly. doesn't feel like anywhere near enough. And when cities and states have to deal with deficits, they have to borrow. And borrowing institutions, if you have a constitutional requirement to balance your budget, and you don't make you pay a higher interest rate, which the federal government for a period of time doesn't yet have to deal with. These are real problems for cities and states.
1: I think if there were any major hole in the CARES Act and the bill we just passed, if there's insufficient funds to help cities and states, we know that revenues are going to plummet, absolutely plummet, plummet at the same time that the need to spend is gonna grow. Um, and the federal government is going to have to fill that gap. So I think if there's anything that will dominate, I mean, we've heard a lot of bad ideas for the next round of stimulus, our, <laughs> but we're going to be keeping a list of dumb ideas because <laughs> they're popping up over and over again, and there's no place for them. But probably the best idea that we'll have to lead a train is there'll need to be more money for, for our states and local governments to fill the huge gaps they have.
0: Right, because their bills will come due and they have to pay them up front and they have to have a a way by which to finance that vastly and immediately needed spending. And the only repository for that is the federal government.
1: That's right. And the deal has always been. And and so sort of on the fiscal front, which I spend so much of my time thinking about, the deal has always been that when times are tough, the federal government can and should borrow. And people will ask ask our organization, you know, how do you feel about this borrowing? You must hate it because you're an anti-deficit group. No, we're actually an anti-deficit group for when you shouldn't be borrowing. There are times you should have deficits. This is one of them. And so the way it can work is that the federal government can borrow um, and it can use that money for all different levels of government. The problem on the fiscal front, of course, that we're facing is that we went into this moment just stupidly, already running trillion dollar deficits. We took advantage of a huge economic expansion when you should be getting your debt under control, a debt that had grown during the big crisis of 2008 and 9, as one would have expected. And they, we took advantage of that moment by huh, political giveaways in every place you could find them. We had massive tax cuts and spending increases to the point where we signed into law, the president signed into law almost $5 trillion in new borrowing at a period where we should have brought debt down, not up. So we entered this downturn with our debt at levels we have never seen since World War II, and we're headed on a trajectory where they'll grow more. Deficits that were already trillion dollars. And this is the illustration of why you need fiscal soundness so that you're ready for a moment like this and you're not constrained by borrowing. And while I think we can and should borrow through this downturn, that huge amount of borrowing we had building up before this, along with the new borrowing we'll have to undertake, will make the recovery much more difficult. It does mean we're vulnerable to interest rate changes or inflationary changes. It certainly means we're vulnerable because we borrow 40% of our, our 40% of our deficit financing comes from overseas, countries that have their own massive challenges all right now, too. So we are all, we can't kind of be diversified as a globe. We're all in this right now. Um, and it means that the measures we'll have to take ultimately to fix these things will be much more difficult. We have punted for years on addressing the fact that Social Security and Medicare and the highway trust funds are all under-resourced and don't have the money to pay the benefits they're supposed to pay. Now those, those days of reckoning will come up earlier in each of these. So the way that once we get through this and we have to turn our attention back to fiscal situations, it will be much, much more difficult because we entered this moment just recklessly unprepared.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an an incredibly important observation for those uh, in the millennial generation and the one that follows after it. If it's Generation Z, I I, I lose track. But you know who you are, uh, young people of America, uh, the great future of this country. I'm not one of these uh, angry, uh, more than middle-aged, guys who doesn't respect millennials and generation X and think they're too soft or anything like that. They're an incredibly uh, energetic and forward thinking and intuitive generation with a lot of things going for it. But one of the things that they've kind of latched onto a little bit with student debt and things like that is this intergenerational problem of finances, things they're going to have to pay for that their elders did not properly and frugally manage. And I think on the other side of this, I'd like your observations on it because I know you think about this a lot. You think about ways to make this issue relevant to those who are younger. I think on the other side of this, uh, millennials, Gen Xs are going to say, wait a minute, where are we? What are the costs of this? What did we do that led us to this place? And what kind of priorities do we need to reestablish to get this stuff off of our backs and not make this mistake again?
1: Yeah, that is, that is, uh, I can't wait till we have enough breathing, breathing room to really start contemplating that because it is what lessons will we have drawn from this moment to help us be more resilient, flexible, nimble for future crises. And also how will we not err as the way that countries often do where we prepare for the same crisis again, whereas the next one will probably be different. I think it is fair to say that we now know um, pandemics are going to become an increasingly strong problem. Like viruses will be getting stronger and they may be, uh, growing and adapting more quickly than our resilience, or our healthcare system can to defend against them. So we know that that's one problem. We know we need to be able to all isolate, go into place and still communicate and keep our economy strong as much as, as, um, we could have, uh, more than we had been prepared for before. But there's so many questions, I think we'll be grappling with as we come out of this, which is fiscal will certainly be one of them because we'll be dealing with debt like never before. But there will also be very big economic questions um, combined with aging demographics that we are facing before workforce issues uh, we've been gradually moving into the you don't stay you know nobody stays in the same job for a lifetime the way you used to the old ibm model is gone but this is going to even the pace of change was so fast already but suddenly we're going to come out of this with some sectors never recovering right so some sectors recover slowly we're all going to go back to restaurants we're not all going to go back that quickly, I'll say. The day that they say, you know, you can go out, I don't think we're all rushing to restaurants. We're going to go cautiously and gradually. But there'll be other things that'll be transformed forever. Um, so far, I think many of us are finding that this communicating by, by uh, video conference is much more effective. And efficient than one would have thought. And I won't get on a plane and fly across the country for every three-day conference, three-hour conference that I might have before. So there'll be some sectors that change forever. We'll all be ordering more online than we used to. So there's economic issues. There's issues like we talked about before, but federalism, where different parts of government should get done. There'll be huge questions about leadership. People will emerge as the heroes and people will emerge as the villains in, out of this because a crisis tests one's ability for leadership. It's, it's how you can lead through a crisis that is a true test. We'll see issues about that. Um, And I think, you know, I look at my teenagers, I know everybody's thinking about this, their kids, this generation is so profoundly affected by what they went through. Like I've, I've just thought of the past years. None of them have the same sense of confidence and optimism that so many of us grew up with. And this is obviously going to put that much more into their experience at the same point that you have seniors and people across the country who are so isolated and, and the depression of all of this could be as bad as the actual health care So there'll be a, what does community mean? What does it mean to be engaged as a generation and set your own I I feel like we're too in the middle to know where this is going, but it's profound. And um, I think there'll be a huge passing of the torch of leadership that comes out of this moment as young people will step up and, and see from their response to this experience how they're going to lead.
0: I couldn't agree more. Maya, it's been a fantastic pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for helping my audience, our audience, get to know a little bit more of the specifics about this legislation, look at it from a fiscal economic perspective and a much more broadly, as we just did a couple of times, philosophical perspective. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Major.
0: I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. Stay here as often as you can, folks, because we're going to be putting out these programs as often as we are able to during these uh, work-at-home realities of COVID-19. See you next time. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
1: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or
0: Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.